the Great March of Return is this is this last stage of the Nakba, which is the stage where we actually reverse or, or re return to our to our lands and activities um, are no longer symbolic, but is uh, something that materializes into actual action, actual confrontation, and actually trying to return um, after the Nakba. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn-Stanley, and this is a special edition of the Electronic Intifada podcast. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Hamza Abu El-Tarabesh, one of our contributors in Gaza City, to talk about the recent devastating attacks on Gaza by Israeli occupation forces. We'll talk about the attacks in the context of Palestinians in Palestine, in refugee camps, and in continued exile around the world, marking the 71st anniversary of the Nakba, when in 1948, Zionist militias expelled some 800,000 Palestinians from their homes and lands. Following the interview with Hamza, we'll hear excerpts from a recent speech by Columbia University professor, historian, and author Joseph Massad, who argues that the Zionist movement and the Israeli state have always been implacably hostile to democracy and universal rights. And now let's go to our recent interview with Gaza reporter and contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Hamza Abu El-Tarabesh. We're really honored to be joined by Hamza Abu El-Tarabesh in Gaza City. And also with us is our colleague Tamara Nassar, who will be translating. Uh, Hamza, thank you so much for joining us on the Electronic Intifada podcast today. Thank you. This is uh, my obligation and pleasure. So Hamza, before we get into uh, Israel's recent attacks on Gaza, can you talk a little bit about who you are, how you became a journalist, and, and what led you to start reporting? Uh, my name is Hamza Khalil Abu Tarabish. I am from the Jabalia uh, refugee camp in northern Gaza. I've been a reporter for six years. I specialize in covering uh, political and humanitarian stories. My journey with uh, journalism started uh, with Israel's attack on Gaza in 2014, Opera Operation Protective Edge, and it uh, stemmed from my ability to convey uh, human stories um, from the war. So in, in, the, uh, in the second war in Gaza in 2012, in November 2012, I started covering uh, events on uh, Facebook little by little. Um, and uh, at that time I was studying law at the Islamic University in Gaza. 
and I had written a poem and my friend Muhammad al-Turk advised me to leave uh, my my studies um, in law and become a journalist. صراحة جعلتني قريب جدا من من إيش ممكن نقول يعني قريب جدا. I should perhaps thank the difficult situation that I was born into um, for for becoming a journalist. I am the son of a refugee camp. Um, many of my friends have been killed. Uh, many of my friends and neighbors have been injured. Um, my journey with journalism was began with me becoming with me being a citizen journalist. يعني بالملخص يعني هي كانت نتيجة الظروف الظروف الصعبة اللي عشناها في مخيم جباليا من اجتياحات من من حصار the 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 result of 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 my of my becoming a journalist is definitely living in the Jabali refugee camp and being constantly subject to raids, uh, siege, and so on. Uh, my my friend Mahmoud al-Kurdi, who now studies philosophy in London, uh, encouraged me a lot, and I was uh, I was then encouraged to start to learn how to write a story and how to how to how to make uh, a story worth um, worth reading. And I started to learn more about the international. Um, measures for journalism and I realized after a while that the most important uh, the most important uh, skill I should I should learn um, uh, on the international and American standard of journalism is uh, to always stick to um, the fact facts in general um, well, let's talk about some of the facts over the last week. Uh, 25 Palestinians were killed by Israeli airstrikes uh, and four Israeli civilians were killed in just over 48 hours last weekend. As our colleague Maureen Murphy reported, quote, however, without any meaningful change to the status quo in Gaza under Israeli air, land and sea blockade for 12 years, a resumption of the deadly fighting is only a matter of time. Um, Hamza... What did you see during those attacks? What is it like for you as a journalist and as a husband and father to a young child when Israel routinely bombs the captive Gaza population like this? Uh, in my in my opinion, um, this last uh, confrontation, this last um, Israeli assault on Gaza was uh, a little bit more than a confrontation, but a little bit less than a war. It was um, in many ways a preview to a large scale war. Um, so there were there were twenty seven casualties, including uh, four Palestinian uh, women and two children so uh, and and the and the and, and the there was there was massive um, devastation to uh, infrastructure and agriculture so it was it was in many ways you can say a large scale war but in a 
very small period of time. To be honest, it was very difficult uh, for me during this time to separate between my job as a reporter and my, my job as a husband and a father. Um, my my uh, wife, uh, Sarah, who is also a journalist, um, was a bit nervous and sometimes she would say, okay, let's go to the field and do some reporting and sometimes uh, let's go home, this is getting really scary. And it wasn't her particular anxiety, but, but, the, but the general atmosphere was very anxious um, and I was trying to to separate between my job as a reporter and my, my job as a, as a dad and a husband um, and to uh, to commit to my to commit to my reporting and to commit to my journalism while also trying to keep my family uh, safe and, and to have that sense of uh, safety and support during the uh, the Israeli assault on Gaza in 2014, I was working for a newspaper called Al Risala, which uh, roughly translates to the message in Arabic. Uh, and you could say that half or most of my peers were very nervous at the time while writing the reports, uh, while covering the events of the war. And uh, at that time, I was single. I wasn't married, and it, 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 I had a I, I, I had a very different feeling and approach. Uh, to the reporting, I was um, uh, relatively more more comfortable in in covering the events and committing to my work as a journalist. Uh, this time, when I was you know sitting in my office at home trying to write and. Uh, trying to keep up with the events, any any sound of bombs um, would uh, would would scare me, and and you know the, the bombing uh, was was sparse. It was it was in unexpected areas, um, and we live in an open uh, field in uh, the northern western parts of Gaza City. So I was uh, nervous. I was thinking of my wife. I was thinking of my children. Um, and any kind of sound would make me think of my family. So uh, this definitely affected my work as a journalist as opposed to in 2014 when I was uh, a bit more focused and I and I didn't uh, really have to think about these things. Um, to be to be honest during the last confrontation um, when I would cover uh, massacres that the that the Israeli army committed I would go out at any time of the day and I would cover the events um, but this time it was very very different um, uh, during uh, during one of one of the massacres that Israel committed 
visited over the weekend uh, in, of the Al-Ghazali family. Um, this happened in, sometime in the afternoon, and my uh, wife and I had a bit of an argument, to be honest, about about um, going. I wanted to go and cover the events, and she wanted me to, to go the next day, and she was very nervous about me leaving the house, and I was under a lot of pressure, um, and I went anyway. I went at 6 p.m., and I came back home at 6 a.m. Uh, I apologize. I went uh, at 6 p.m. and I came home at 2 a.m. and I found uh, Sarah uh, drowning in tears and and she said that um, and it, and it really shocked me. She said, um, you know, it's never guaranteed whether you're a journalist or a paramedic or a child. Um, I I could be targeted. So um, that was very difficult. Hamza, what's it like? being a journalist and working in these difficult circumstances. Uh, in terms of getting the information uh, from the field, it differs from one journalist to another in Gaza. Um, and I think it's highly dependent on the journalist's connections. Um, my connections are pretty extensive and broad and I have uh, connections with different people from from people in the in the in the health uh, department and otherwise so I think uh, I think it's highly dependent on those connections uh, there is definitely a good cooperation between concerned concerned parties and uh, international journalists. I think when people know that um, I'm an international journalist, it's a bit easier for me to uh, reach the the fact or the information that I know. With one exception, it's really difficult to get information about security. That's definitely hard to reach. But you can definitely sense a sense of. Uh, clear respect uh, for international journalists because people in Gaza want to get the message out. In my in my coverage of the last uh, four massacres in, in in Israel's most recent attack, um, there were four families who who uh, uh, got killed in the context of, of those attacks. There was the Arar family, uh, the Madhun family, the Ghazali family, and the Abu al-Jadian family, and. Uh, I conducted 25 interviews uh, for uh, concerning those those uh, four massacres, and I did not really find um, a lot of hurdles or or um, hiccups while doing them. But I definitely tried to stray away from security coverage. What does he mean by security coverage? Can you explain that a little bit more? In terms of uh, certain files or certain events, when when uh, there are Israeli missiles in, let's say, open fields or in areas that are that are that is it's generally known that they belong to Palestinian resistance factions. We tend to kind of stay away for security reasons and uh, because it's not really um, uh, necessary or let's say safe uh, for us to 
for there to be friction with that. Uh, he's, he just wants to clarify one more thing. Uh, honestly, Israel committed uh, four massacres in, in the span of 24 hours. Um, and it really showed its 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 criminal uh, its criminal face. And uh, what it what's, what was actually what actually also became clear is that Israel has no real uh, military bank in Gaza. What this means is that uh, when when Palestinian resistance factions attack. Um, attack um, Israel, they are really attacking its military. They, uh, And that's what was shown in, in one of the videos, is that um, Palestinian resistance factions can attack civilians, but they aim their attacks on the Israeli military. Uh, what's, what happens then is that when Israel retaliates, it deliberately targets civilians. Um, it, 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 it releases its anger on, on uh, civilian um, civilians in, in Gaza. Uh, the Israeli military said that it targeted 350 um, Palestinian resistance functions uh, sites in Gaza in, in the span of 72 hours. Um, but uh, the the reality of that is that the vast majority of the of these targets are actually residential units and and and, and uh, places or people educational spaces or cultural spaces um and a very small percentage of them are uh belong to our you know governmental institutions for example uh, police stations or 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 site like resistance sites uh, near near the Israel Gaza boundary fence. It's more than a year since the Great March of Return began, and what is your assessment of the marches? Um, how well attended are they? Has it dropped off at all since the beginning, um, or since you know as time has gone along, and have the marches succeeded in any of their aims? Uh... بخصوص مسيرة العودة في الحقيقة من وجهة نظر المتواضعة إن مسيرة العودة تشكل بداية انتصار حقيقي على مشروع الاحتلال على أرض فلسطين um, over my coverage of the Great March of Return, which um, I think I don't think I have missed a single one, I real I I noticed that that um, the Great March of Return is really about one one thing, which is the right uh, to return, Palestinians' right to return to their homelands. And that right is non-negotiable and um, an absolute uh, right. So um, the, the, other, the other thing that really struck me about about being at the Great March of Return and doing my coverage is, how, is Israel's lies uh, about who would actually go 
to the march. Um, there is this misconception uh, that Israeli propaganda relays that it's mostly working class people who who go there because uh, because they want to they want to get killed by the Israeli military, and that is absolutely not true. Um, I have I have seen uh, working class people. I have seen engineers. I have seen writers, workers, those who are unemployed, uh, cultural figure, figures, and and they did not they do not go to the Israel Gaza boundary fence to die. They they go there because they are all under, they are all going under one banner, which is the absolute. Uh, uh, right of the Palestinian people to return to their homelands. That is why people go. People don't go because they they want to get killed or they want to get rid of their lives. No, people people are demanding their right to يبدون أو يقدمون المعطيات السياسية يطرحون على التفاهمات بين تفاهمات في مصر بمعنى كانت الأول so in Palestinians paid a very hefty price uh, for the Great March of Return. Uh, more than 250 people have been killed in the context of the Great March of Return, most of them youth. Um, and uh, while the Gaza Health Ministry uh, tried to attend to those who were injured, I think the needs have largely been unmet, and even even um, those who have survived, um, Israeli snipers, there's almost a whole generation of amputees um, who uh, were maimed or uh, disabled by Israeli bullets. Um, that's the first point. Uh, the second point I would like to talk about is that um, there has been a some kind of ignorance or or lack of solidarity in the general in, in the in the region uh, Palestinians in the occupied West Bank have been uh, largely absent from the great March of return conversation they haven't really uh, displayed their solidarity very well and um, and that was uh, I, I don't think they have they have um, stood with the Palestinians and the occupied Gaza Strip uh, like they should have um, the other thing is that there has also been uh, an, an international ne negligence uh, to Israel's crimes in the Great March of Return um, until this day there has been no official um, uh, uh, really like attention from the International Criminal Court especially in, in especially regarding Black Monday when Israel killed more than uh, or about 60 Palestinians in, in one day that was in uh, in May 2018 two months after or, or one month and a half after the Great March of Richmond started um, and from uh, and for me as someone who who is uh, originally from Ashkelon, uh, Ashkelon, which is a, 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 a city now in, in present-day Israel in the south. Um, uh, I think that uh, the Great March of Return hasn't really 
uh, achieved its its main goals. It hasn't really broken a siege, and it hasn't returned our homeland. So, I still I, I think those are the two most important um, demands, and and I think that the international community should do more to support Palestinians um, uh, and not let their lives go in vain uh, by by chasing Israel in the international courts. My, my personal experience as a reporter um, during the Great March of Return was very eye-opening. Uh, reporters are definitely targeted by Israeli snipers. As, as you know, uh, my two colleagues, Yasser al-Murtaja and Mutanna Abu Hassanein, two uh, journalists that were killed by Israeli snipers um, during the Great March of Return last year. Um, in, in, from from uh, my experience and from what I know, there have been 33 Palestinian journalists who were targeted by live ammunition uh, during the Great March of Return and uh, more than 120 who uh, were injured by uh, tear gas canisters or suffocations. Um, so, so in, in my experience, so as so as to, uh, you know, when I when I first started to cover the Great March of Return, uh, and I noticed how the Israeli snipers were targeting reporters, I started um, straying away from other reporters so that we would not be targeted in groups. And then I realized that it was actually safer for me. You know, I, at the beginning I would wear the the press vest, um, and then I realized that it would actually maybe be safer for me to take off the vest and to blend in with other protesters because I realized that Israeli snipers were deliberately targeting journalists. So I took off um, the, palace, the, the, the press vest, I, I took off the helmet so as to not be a target and to just blend in with other protesters uh, uh, um, so as not to be targeted by Israeli snipers. Yeah, talk a little bit more about about your experience, Hamza, and also, you know, the the seventy first anniversary of the Nakba is is coming up. Um, how are people at the Great March of Return um, continuing to struggle? How are you continuing to struggle as a refugee um, in in the occupied Gaza Strip um, for for that right? There is an old Israeli saying, I don't really, I don't really know where it comes from, that, uh, that says that the old die and that the young forget. Um, and I think that Palestinians have largely proved otherwise. Uh, before the Great March of Return, there were definitely activities on the Gaza Strip that uh, to commemorate the Nakba, um, different activities that range from having tents where people would present uh, uh, cultural or traditional um, aspects of Palestinian life, be um, surrounding the theme of the Nakba. Some of the original refugees, the older generation, would even sometimes bring documents to prove being in those cities where they where they were forcibly expelled. Um, and and which which all circled around this the idea of 
uh, return. Um, so I don't think that the Great March of Return is, is something new uh, or radically novel about about uh, the Nakba. I think it's I think it's actually part of a very of, of, of a narrative that started when the Nakba happened, which is that eventually we would re we would return, and this is what the manifestation of the Great March of Return is. Oh. Before the Great March of Return, uh, May 15th and May 14th have always been, uh, especially May 15th, a historical day for Palestinians. So there has always been some kind of commemoration of the Nakba, be it uh, in elementary schools or small time festivals and all of these small symbolic gestures of trying to remember the Nakba and trying to remember uh, Palestinians being forcibly displaced from their ho homelands. But there has been also a growth in the Palestinian consciousness in, in, in what this actually means. And that's when um, even before the Great March of Return started, there have been calls for peaceful protest, uh, trying to demand the Great March of Return, which is what, in a way, gave birth to it. Um, and the Great March of Return is kind of like this last stage um, in in the realization of the Great March of Return, um, and uh, especially in the context of uh, U.S. President Donald Trump's uh, moving of the U.S. Embassy uh, to Jerusalem and recognizing uh, Jerusalem as the as the capital of uh, as the capital of Israel. So, so in many ways, um, uh, the 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 Great March of Return is this is this last stage of the Nakba, which is the stage where we actually reverse or or re return to our to our lands and activities. Um, are no longer symbolic or uh, happen in schools or, or streets, but is uh, something that materializes into actual action, actual confrontation, and actually trying to return um, after the Nakba. Um, I just have five uh, or six small points that I would like to make before we close. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you both um, or all for <laughs> hosting me. Uh, and uh, so the first thing is that uh, when Israel targets uh, so-called empty land, it's actually destroying um, agriculture in the Gaza Strip. The second point is that when Israel targets buildings, even if there is no one in them, uh, they at the time of the bombing, they are residential commercial buildings and they directly affect and very gravely the livelihoods of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Um, they either lose homes or they lose their shops and like their commercial centers where they make a living. Uh, the third point is that um, when Israel does target civilians during those assaults, uh, very often it kills entire families. Uh, there have been four 
families who were deliberately targeted um, by uh, the Israeli assault on uh, on Gaza in the past uh, week. And uh, the fourth point is that uh, when Palestinian resistance factions respond to Israeli uh, strikes on the Gaza Strip, they are not trying to kill uh, civilians, they're not anti-Semitic, um, they're not trying to target the Jewish community, but they are responding to an, the Israeli military in specific, who, uh, which which launches attacks on them deliberately, and they and they are defending themselves against that military in specific, and not um, a larger religious ideology or anything like that. Um, uh, the the fifth point is that the Israel's targeting of of civilians is not only is 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 is, is um, you can see Israel targeting civilians during the Great March of Return and as they sit um, in their homes. Uh, that that does not change. Um, and my final point is that uh, Palestinian resistance uh, to Israeli occupation is not some is not a matter of personal opinion, but it's a right uh, granted to any occupied people under international law. So um, it's it's uh, complete. It's uh, perfectly lawful for Palestinians to resist resist against uh, a military occupation. As as a as a parent, and I'm sure Asa also feels this way. I'm I'm always um, I like asking people about their kids. So maybe. Hamza, can you tell us finally a little bit about your son and um, the hopes that you have for him and what it's like being a parent um, these days in Gaza? ما فيش أمال سياسية أو ما بالعكس إحنا ما هو مقبل هو أسوأ يعني خلال تفكيره صراحة خل خليل مع الأيام بكبر صار اليوم عمره ست شهور كتير بقعد مع نفسي بقول طيب أنا إيش ممكن أقدم لخليل إنه ما يدخلش ما ما ينصدمش بالواقع my 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 son Khalil is growing very fast. He's six months now, and um, I I think it's my duty as a as a, as a father now is uh, for him to grow into understanding the circumstances around him without having to go through some kind of shock. Um, I want to provide him with a good future. I want to secure him a, 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 a good future, even even politically, in, I mean, in, in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, I, I want to I want to give him the opportunity to be able to to travel to see the world outside of Gaza to uh, for him not to be shocked that he is he is stuck there um, I think uh, you know Sarah has has some relatives in the U.S. and the Czech Republic, and I have some relatives in Sweden and Greece, and 
Um, you know, I, I, this is not out of some kind of materialistic desire to leave to those European countries and to live there, but out of this deep desire for political independence. And if I could give um, Khalil anything um, as, a, as a father, and I, you know, I might change my mind tomorrow, I might change it in half an hour, uh, but it would really be to give him the kind of diplomacy or, the, or, the, or some kind of foreign or European passport, a travel document of any kind, so that to make it easier for him to leave, to give him that, that opportunity. And you know, like I said, I might I might change my mind. This 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 is not something that um, I'm sure about. But it's I, I I feel like generally there is there is so much depression uh, around me and with my friends and uh, I'm not really talking very specifically about my individual experience but uh, for the youth here there is a general deep melancholy when it when it comes to thinking about the future and I and I don't want excuse me Khalil to be shocked uh, by that or to kind of to reflect it on my son um, without having to, without even trying to to mend it um, you know I, I I'm 28 years old I have never seen an airplane I don't even know what it smells like to get on an airplane I don't want him to have that kind of like life I want him to have an opportunity it's really difficult to leave the Gaza Strip you know with the with the Rafah crossing with, with Egypt and Israel it's traveling is, is a nightmare as you know so I, I, I don't want him to have to go through this depression and to have to grow in a generation that is that doesn't really have an imagination of a, of a future and no matter what he wants to do whether he wants to work as a reporter like us or uh, to work in local politics um, I want him to have that opportunity uh, I work in a local press at the uh, right now and you know like for the past five months there has been almost no salary um, and and uh, it's it's really depressing so I, I, I do want him to uh, have a better life and you know we're a small family like Sarah's uh, this is news but Sarah is pregnant now and uh, I want the four of us to be able to have a life um, that maybe is not available in the Gaza in, in Gaza and I and maybe you know like the way that you fulfill your duties as journalists um, outside of Palestine maybe we can do the same uh, somewhere outside where we can have more uh, political freedom and and less restrictions on movement and travel and that kind of thing. Um, Nora and Asa, he's he's saying that um, he has utmost uh, belief and trust um, and conviction that we, he will uh, once Palestine is free, he we will all go to Akka and he's going to open a flower shop and he's and Khalid, his son, is going to get married there and he's going to uh, give us a bouquet of flower from his shop. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, Hamza, congratulations, uh, Mabruk, to you and your wife Sarah Algerbawi, who's also a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Thank you so much for all of your great work with us um, and for spending this time with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. And thank you to Tamara Nassar, our, our colleague at the Electronic Intifada, for her expert translation skills and abilities. Thank you so much, Tamara. Of course, I, I hope I uh, uh, did Hamza justice and I hope everything 
was clear in my interpretation and uh, thank you very much Hamze for everything that you contributed uh, in terms of knowledge and personal experience and we are very grateful uh, to have you as a writer and uh, as a guest on this podcast. Thank you. مع أول نفس من خلق الهم بنولد روحك شايفها العالم لازم تنجلد مقموع عسير مغترب لاجد بحلم بهالبلد تتنفس حرية مش خاضع يكون عبد مشتت دائل سبب بلاء قرارات أخذوها غصب قلت حد كيف ممكن يعيش بنبط بحب الحياة بفرح وسط كل هالخبط بغني الأمر رغم حصار هدف وينتكب طموح تربع من قاومت القعر وجاري لوحوش علف متعيش بتهد بالضار وعمر بطير وبحفر بالصخر طقفي الساسة ينحر بالنفسية نحر رغم هيك خرجنا من الصندوق الصعد صار هو صديقنا الصادوق أغلبنا لسه عايش بيكات المهلوك لكن مع إيمانه اللي بضعفش حيصل كالمكفوك على خير على خير روحنا بوطننا بطير على خير على خير لنزح ولا حتى اللين على خير على خير رحنا بوطننا بطير على That was Al Akhir, a new track by the Gaza-based hip-hop group Revolution Makers. And now Columbia University professor Joseph Massad recently gave this speech at Middle East Monitor's conference focusing on Palestinian citizens of Israel, in which he examines the record of Zionist racism, ethnic cleansing, military rule, and discriminatory legislation over the last century to the present day. Here's an excerpt of Joseph Massad's speech. On Sunday, 10th March 2019, During an Israeli cabinet meeting, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu insisted that Israel is, quote, a Jewish democratic state, unquote, yet that it was also, quote, a nation state not of all its citizens, but only of the Jewish people, unquote. Netanyahu's statements are very much anchored in the country's legal system and are in no way a violation of Israel's core commitment to legally privileging Jewish citizens over non-Jewish citizens. While this has been legal practice since 1948, the July 2018 nation-state law reiterated these basic Israeli legal principles. In reaffirming principles of Israeli law, the nation-state basic law uh, tells us, inter alia, of the exclusive Jewish symbolism of the flag and of the national anthem and of national holidays, the ingathering of the diaspora Jews, the adoption of the Jewish Sabbath as the weekly official holiday, and of the Hebrew calendar as the official calendar. What is new in the law, however, are two claims made in the first section titled Basic Principles. It is in Article 1a that the law introduces a new legal term when it refers not to the state of Israel, but to the land of Israel. The land of Israel is the historical homeland, it tells us, of the Jewish people in which the state of Israel was established. While Article 1b, which states that, quote, the state of Israel is the national home of the Jewish people and not of its Israeli citizens of all ethnicities and religions, is not new, the article does not only define what the state of Israel encompasses and what identity it should have, but specifically it refers to the land of Israel, which encompasses all of mandatory Palestine and the Golan Heights for all wings of the Zionist movement and also includes Jordan in the case of the revisionist Zionists, of which the ruling Likud coalition party is today's representative. The land of Israel is an important and old ideological claim for Zionism. 
However, making it a legal claim is novel and encroaches on the sovereignty of neighboring Jordan and Syria and violates the Geneva Conventions in laying claim to these territories, in addition to the Palestinian West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. But the law introduces another key novel claim in Articles 1b and 1c, one that the Zionist movement and Israel have never made before, namely, and I quote, that the state of Israel is the national home of the Jewish people in which it fulfills its historical right to self-determination, unquote. This is in 1b, and quote that the right to exercise national, to exercise national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. Unquote. This is Article 1c. Self-determination has never been advanced either as a legal principle or as a right by the Zionist movement or by Israeli law previously. Indeed, it was not mentioned in key Zionist ideological documents historically. What then is the purpose of invoking the right of self-determination in the new law? The Zionist movement has argued often that establishing a Jewish state for world Jewry was a moral and historical necessity that must be protected and enshrined in law, something it tirelessly pursued over the decades. However, this did not mean that its foundational texts proceeded from this juridical or moral principle. Indeed, in his two foundational texts, and I, I will give you a historical background, in Der Judestadt, The State of the Jews, and in his novel Old New Land, Theodor Herzl, the father of Zionism, never invoked the notion of Jewish rights to argue for a state of and for the Jews. Herzl did speak of a solution to the Jewish question, but not of a right. And neither did the first Zionist Congress Congress that Herzl convened in 1897 and the Basel program it issued, which did not cite such a right. This also applies to the three international foundational texts that Zionism worked hard to bring about. The first such text, the Balfour Declaration, issued on November 2nd, 1917 by the British government, rather than use the language of rights, used the language of affect, promising that the British government, and I quote, views with favor, unquote, the establishment in Palestine of a Jewish national home, and that its declaration was, quote, a declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, unquote. This was followed by the League of Nations Mandate for Palestine, issued in 1922, which based itself on the Balfour Declaration and also did not recognize any Jewish rights to a state uh, uh, in Palestine. What it did recognize was, and I quote, the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine as the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. Again, asserting, like the Balfour Declaration before it, that this should not prejudice the rights of non-Jews. The third and major text, the November 1947 partition plan issued by the United Nations General Assembly, proceeded from a moral preamble, namely that the General Assembly considered, and I quote, that the present situation in Palestine is one which is likely to impair the general welfare and friendly relations among nations, and hence, unquote, and hence the need to provide a solution to what they called the problem of Palestine. Now, unlike these Zionist and international foundational documents, which did not employ the language of rights, the Zionist movement insisted on its use in its own foundational document of the state, namely Israel's so-called Declaration of Independence, which formally, in fact, is titled the Declaration of the Establishment of the State of Israel. 
The declaration, which was signed, incidentally, by 37 Jewish leaders, 35 of whom were European colonists and only one of whom was born in Palestine, misinforms us that, quote, in the year, this is the Declaration of Independence or the establishment of the state. In the year 1897, at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state, Theodore Herzl, the first Zionist Congress convened and proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to national rebirth in its own country, unquote. As the documentary record shows, however, neither Herzl nor the Zionist Congress proclaimed such a right at all. Yet the Declaration of Independence proceeds to tell us that, quote, this right was recognized in the Balfour Declaration of the 2nd November 1917 and reaffirmed in the Mandate of the League of Nations, which in particular gave international sanction to the historic connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Israel and to the right of the Jewish people to rebuild its national home. On the 29th of November 1947, this is the declaration still, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a Jewish state. The General Assembly required the inhabitants of Eretz Israel to take such steps as were necessary on their part for the implementation of that resolution. This recognition by the United Nations of the right of the Jewish people to establish their state is irrevocable." Unquote. None of these documents, in fact, as none of these documents has affirmed such a right at all, the imputation of them that they did falls more in the realm of Zionist investment in the new language of international relations within which the notion of rights became enshrined after World War II, not least in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This also coincided with the emergence of rights discourse in the same period as the hegemonic form of claims making. Indeed, Israel's so-called Declaration of Independence is so invested in this mode of argumentation that it invokes the European Enlightenment's notion of natural rights when it asserts in its preamble that, quote, this right to a Jewish state is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations in their own sovereign state, unquote. The, former, the, the, the framers of the declaration concluded that by virtue of, quote, our natural and historic right, and on the strength of the resolution of the UN General Assembly, hereby declare the, estab the establishment of the Jewish state in Eretz Israel to be known as the State of Israel, unquote. It's important to point out that the logic of this document is its insistence that its invocation of the Jews' right to establish a Jewish state in Palestine has a clear legal and moral genealogy, of which it is merely the conclusion, and that such a right was finally granted irrevocably, as it says, by the partition plan. That none of this was true did not deter the framers, who in asserting a right they arrogated to themselves, we're now instituting a mode of argumentation that would be the most powerful rhetoric in establishing Israeli facts on the ground. However, establishing the Zionist movement's right to Palestine was more in line with a two-century European tradition that used to be called the right of conquest, which European colonial settlers have invoked to justify settler colonialism, whether in the Americas and Oceania, in the African settler colonies, and now in Asia. Israel's invocation of its right of conquest in its 1948 document must be seen within these important European precedents. In the early part of the 20th century, the South African white colonial settler leader, Jan Smuts, recorded, or recoded rather, the right of conquest as the right of self-determination. 
This is, people sometimes think self-determination as an anti-colonial notion. There is that part from Lenin, but in fact it was used, it was invoked by Jan Smuts. He's the one who actually coined it and gave it to Woodrow Wilson. So essentially self-determination was always a white colonial settler notion and principle. So it's very important to remember this. Um, uh, so, uh, the rights to self-determination, which Jan Smuts applied to the white colonial settlers of South Africa, and which soon would be followed by white settlers in Rhodesia and Kenya, among others. The French colonial settlers, the Biennois of Algeria, were earlier converts to this understanding, when in 1870, and through the Camus decree, they established settler colonial rights and autonomy. Whereas the right to self-determination would take another trajectory when appropriated by the colonized between the 1920s and 1960s, the United States intervened at the United Nations in 1970 to reframe the right to self-determination as one that applied to colonized people, but not to indigenous populations and settler colonies, wherein the latter, the US insisted, could access local municipal rights but none that would threaten the sovereignty and unity of the existing settler colonial state. In light of these new US modifications, Israeli leaders began to speak intermittently of recognizing that the Palestinians in the 1967 occupied territories, but of course not those in Israel or those refugees Israel expelled, but that only Palestinians in the 67 territories could make a similar claim to self-determination. In the Israeli case, the question of self-determination was never raised as a legal principle and was always marginal in Zionist ideological posturing. For the European Jewish colonists, self-determination would be translated to Hebrew from the Russian as the right of self-definition, or The term first appeared in Hebrew in 1905 as a translation, but had been in use since the 1920s with the pronounced rise during the, ter the terrorist war that the Zionist militias launched against the British occupation authorities in the early 1940s through 1948. But not unlike the rise of the concept among South African white colonial settlers following the Boer War in which they fought the British Empire and which led to the British establishment of the Union of South Africa in 1910, as a British dominion with white self-government, European Jewish colonists began to use self-determination in earnest when they parted ways with their British colonial masters. Nonetheless, the principle or right of Jewish self-determination was never mentioned in any of the laws of the State of Israel. It would take seven decades before the nation-state law would codify Jewish self-determination as a right. In contrast, Palestinians demanded the right of self-determination as early as 1918 in petitions and documents presented to the British authorities opposing Zionism and referencing both U.S. President Woodrow Wilson and British Prime Minister David Lloyd George's support of it as articulated by Jan Smuts as early as May 1918 and later in a statement presented by the Palestinian delegation to the Paris Peace Conference on 3rd February 1919, and most importantly, by the Palestinian delegation, um, sorry, most importantly in the declaration of the independence of Syria, which was issued on 8th March 1920. That was Professor Joseph Massad at the recent Middle East Monitor Conference. For the video and links to other speeches and panel discussions at the conference, and more information on all the stories we discussed today, go to electronicintifada.net. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. On behalf of Asa Wynn-Stanley and the entire Electronic Intifada team, thanks for joining us on the Electronic Intifada podcast.
And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.